is this same toilet new sh moving through illusions in search of what truth is confusion and loose ends clueless i think we need a blueprint the journey never ends walk a mile if the shoe fits what's an identity it's been on my mind like a memory is it a true depiction of who we are to be or just categorizing our energy. Ask, is this really me? Or just who I pretend to be and hope someone is feeling me in search of validity, we limit infinity. Should we just let go? Tell our egos to lay low? Stop trying to control, surrender and let things flow. Watch them and reflect on whatever is becoming like echoes, the moments we can't hold. Should we follow the feeling wherever it says go, like wind to a sailboat, and simply for best hope? You never know. You never know what it's really for. You never know who you really are, so why not just be? Why not just be? Feelings come and go. People come and go. How long will it last? Would you want to know? My loves, today you are listening to Uproar Radio with Bryant. <laughs> and we are having an identity crisis. Radio. I'm Bryant. I got show in here with me. Hey, hey. We just got done listening to a track called Manifest. Me and my brother have been working on this for a while now. And we just wanted to showcase a little bit for you all. Just give you a taste of what we will be producing or releasing next year. So, yeah. But today, today, today. We will be talking about Facebook. 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 You know, Facebook is having an identity crisis. And I know you might think, like, what does that mean? What does it mean for Facebook to have an identity crisis? Right. Well, according to VeryWellMind.com, an identity crisis is a developmental event that involves a person questioning their sense of self or place in the world. And 
you know, secret number three of the seven truths of the media that quote unquote they do not want you to know about is everything from the margin moves to the center. This refers to a shift, a shift in thinking, believing, and existing. Uh, yeah, this sounds like an identity crisis to me, you know? <laughs> right. So, what is Facebook? Yeah, like, what is, what is Facebook? Facebook, according to the site itself, it's a social networking site that makes it easy for you to connect and share with family and friends online. And today, it's one of the world's largest social networks with more than 1 billion users worldwide. Not to mention the other platforms that they own that also have billions of users. Exactly. I know Instagram is one of them, I'm mm -hmm. not sure. But WhatsApp, I'm too. Two billion users with WhatsApp. God. Man. And so when we talk about, like, what is Facebook, right? We just kind of broke apart their own definition. Yeah. So, I mean, let's take a moment. Now, I want to ask you, Bryant. What is Facebook to you? Simply put, I see Facebook as a reflection of the collective human consciousness that interacts with it. We put who we are into these clouds of digital information that we are a part of. So I see it as an amalgamation of who we are. What about you? I've So I'm actually, I will be the first to admit that I do not have a Facebook and I have not really used Facebook in a long time. And so when I think of Facebook, I actually look at it externally. Mm. Um, I think of it as a place where people go to discuss things that they normally wouldn't feel comfortable discussing in person. Um, you know, you talk about this amalgamation of ideas of who we are and stuff. And I think that um, the internet, especially Facebook, ends up becoming that safe space where we can explain where we can express who we really are and whether that's for better or for worse, we oftentimes tend to be more bold on the internet and kind of say things. Whereas in our public selves, we would hide that feature maybe more so. And so, you know, there's a lot of um, extreme language that you see on Facebook and stuff like that. And I think that that's something that we wouldn't necessarily encounter in day-to-day -day life. It's interesting that you say that um, there was this, this study done by a psychologist, I think his name was Gunnar Myrtle. Mm. He came to do a study on racism in the South. Right. Um, in the Jim Crow era. I don't want to get it wrong. He was from somewhere out of the country. I know it was in Europe somewhere. I don't want to say Germany because I don't want to misassociate. But he came here to do a study. And one of the things that he got from his study, one of his one of my favorite quotes from him, he learned through studying, you know, that oftentimes people's public opinions are not the same as their private ones. It's interesting. I mean, it's interesting, too, when we talk about the idea of identity and to have a crisis of identity. And what does that mean? I mean, um, I guess we're talking about Facebook. So it's a little top level. When mm -hmm. you gave that definition, it was very individualized, like a person. But yeah. when we talk about identity crises, crises. Yeah. And we talk about Facebook, we're really discussing like not just one person, but like a whole company that has a bunch of people within it. And so it's so interesting to talk about like, what does it mean? Not only how do we interact with Facebook and how do we build that identity through Facebook, but how does Facebook build its identity through us, yeah, right? Yeah, very good. Very nice way to see it, man. And that's really the where the sentiment of like it being an amalgamation of mm. who we are from our perspective comes from but you're correct with you seeing it in an external right way it's like you're also looking at the fact that facebook is like being monitored and filtered through these gatekeepers you yeah know? yeah i mean uh we're definitely i think we're going to talk about the gatekeepers a little bit later on in the show uh, but i think that's such an important thing to think about when we talk about the identity of facebook is that it it is these gatekeepers that, mm -hmm. um, I mean, yes, Mark Zuckerberg is someone who is a gatekeeper, obviously he has a lot of control in Facebook as a publicly traded company. He's done a lot of work to maintain that control, but there's still so many others within the organization that have that control that like we don't even think about, I think. Um, I would like to, before we kind of step off of this segment, I'd like to kind of ask about kind of, you talk about how you view Facebook as an amalgamation of who we are. 
I guess the question to you is, which identity is our true self? Is it the one that we present online or is it the one that we present in person? Um, have you seen the Bo Burnham special Inside? Yes. Do you remember at the end where he talks about how the world, it's now we live in a digital world and we actually only enter the real world to like get content and then yeah. we re-enter the digital world where we actually socialize. So then that's, I thought was a very interesting perspective. And when you talk about how you view Facebook as an amalgamation of who we are, it's almost as if Facebook has a closer picture of our true identity versus who we present in IRL, in real life situations. So my question to you is, what do you think is the closest identity? Is it the one we present on social media, so SNS, social networking sites, or is it the one that we have in person? <laughs> What a beautiful question. <laughs> I think that right there you get into a sticky situation because you start pondering mm. what is real. Mm -hmm. You know, like yeah, that that's that that needs to be understood as a foundation. And reality is what the society agrees upon collectively. Right. And that's what we deem to be real. Right. But literally we can look at the same color and it can we can perceive it to be two different colors. Your red could be my blue, but we call them we call we call this color blue that right, we're looking at. Right. So I honestly it's difficult for me to say what is real when it comes to that. I can say what it is for me. Right, right. Who are you to say the unequivocal truth yes. of things? Okay, so, so let's rephrase the question. What do you think? For me, I think that what we present on social media is a piece mm. of who we are in in the world outside of and who we are outside of is a piece mm. <laughs> of our essence you know okay okay um, it's the piece of our essence that for some reason has chosen to shine through so I don't think that any of those are all of what is you know right and all or all of what we are right I think that all of what we are is what real is, you know, that's what's, that's what's real. But I feel like for right now, we're just getting bits and pieces of the story. Right. We don't even know we really, and, and the question, or I guess the real statement is, I guess we can never know. I mean, that's a large part of the series. <laughs> exactly. Not, not while we're existing in time. Exactly. I mean, uh, if we had all the data points and all the time in the world, we would know, but we'd never, we're not going to be at the end of time. So <laughs> I beg to differ. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. Uh, but I don't have any proof, so I can't, I can't argue that you right now. But so I know you, you did some, some research on Axios. Yes. I was reading through a couple of different, uh, you know, publications and just trying to see the kind of information that they're bringing out there. And, mm -hmm. you know, we're talking about the identity crisis and Axios is reporting that, you know, we, there's so little or there is a literal identity crisis that's happening, not just in the way that we see SNS, but in the way that we use it or like how what we use it for, mm. um, because we're now using SNS platforms in a way for it's, it's basically in a way for entertainment more so than it is for the social networking aspect. And so, like, when we actually look at the kinds of identity crises that Facebook is having and within Facebook is companies like Instagram, WhatsApp, they're really looking at like, what are they? Because when we say, what is Facebook? We oftentimes say it's a, let's, let me scroll back to the definition. It's a social networking site that makes it easy for you to connect. But when you look at the actual data that is leaking from the Facebook papers, which we'll touch on a little bit, but um, from both their internal and external statements, their identity crisis is, is that social networking sites are not the thing. Rather, it's entertainment sites. Mm -hmm. uh, platforms like YouTube and TikTok are like huge. And so Facebook is having this identity crisis of, are we a social networking site or are we going to become an entertainment company? And that's a whole nother thing. I mean, I don't remember if you remember, but during the 2016 through the 2020, um, the Trump presidency, the Trump uh, administration was very much concerned with th the status of Facebook and about, um, I think it was section 230 or something about that, about they're going to repeal a particular section that gave these protections to social media sites because 
kind of like in the same way that a gun manufacturer is not responsible for gun deaths, social media sites are not responsible for the content that gets posted on their sites. Toxic, toxic. Yeah, and so when you think about kind of, and, and the, re, the thing that a lot of these social media sites have stood on is that, well, we're a social networking site. We are just connecting people. We're not an entertainment company. Mm -hmm. But now when you think about this identity crisis, how are they going to describe, how are they going to convince, not just me or you or every other user, um, but legally, how are they going to convince like legal people to be like, hi, we're still a social networking site, even though we are a lot like TikTok and a lot like uh, YouTube and we've become an entertainment medium more than anything else. I think that um, we can answer that question by the end of the show. Yes, I think I think that we should. We should. So, you know, I I guess kind of say all that what do you think about it i mean there's obviously there is this shift that's happening and there is this identity crisis that's occurring not just in not just in how we use it but what facebook is so do you see this change actually happening i think it's very vivid you know with the increase in censorship with the shift in the way that the interface with even with Facebook mm -hmm. and um and Instagram, they're more TikTok like, mm -hmm. you know, in the way that you interact with it. You just you don't even have to do anything. You lit the videos will go from video to video in a very like seamless manner, mm -hmm. just like TikTok. It's a contradiction to what the culture initially thought itself to be. Right. You know, and it's very interesting that you brought up the fact that they did not want to take responsibility at first. And now it's like they're they're literally becoming the thing that they claim to 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 not be. And right. it's kind of, you know, identity crises make you seem toxic. And I think that after the break, after this next track that we show, we will get deeper into this identity crisis, exploring things like the Facebook papers that we mentioned. So up next, we have this track called Toxic by Josh Camp. just got done listening to Toxic by Josh Kemp and Bryant. Now, we are discussing identity crisis, I, crises, crises. Yeah, crisis. Crisis, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the whole reason we're doing this is because of the Facebook papers that were leaked. So tell me about the Facebook papers, man. Yeah, so the Facebook papers actually uh, came about from a Facebook whistleblower named Francis Haugen. Um, just just in the last month or so, in the last few weeks even, mm. um, this information has been coming out. And basically, these Facebook papers are a bunch of internal documentation that tells us what Facebook understands internally. And this is kind of the only time that we've seen the internal workings of Facebook in this way, especially the kinds of information that came out um, 
which I guess we'll end up talking about, but kind of almost directly contradict a lot of what Facebook has said publicly. And so, again, we go back to this idea of identity crisis and the Facebook papers. I feel like as if so we were looking up doing some research prior to the show and we were discussing how in 2018 there was a Wall Street Journal article that was already discussing Facebook's identity crisis and it's 2021 now. And so like it's a thing we've been kind of, I guess, kicking around and then the Facebook papers come out and everyone's like, okay, yeah, like not only was it us thinking it, but internally they were having this identity crisis as well. So um, I just want to go through a couple of things that I thought were really interesting about the Facebook papers, if that's okay. Please do. Um, And so The Verge, uh, The Verge did a lot of this early reporting. And so they were basically saying how, like when we think about Facebook, oftentimes, especially from older users or from older people in our community, they often claim that Facebook is like a young person social media site. Oh, all you young kids are always on your Facebook, always on your Instagram. Um, but internal surveys have shown that people, especially younger users, look at Facebook as a platform for 40 to 50 year olds. Yeah. Like they don't even see it as something that young adults would use. Um, they, they perceive it as quote, boring, misleading, and negative. <laughs> And they have to often get past irrelevant content to get to what matters. And that's just talking about Facebook. That's not necessarily about Instagram. Yeah. Um, so there's obviously different concentrations of, you know, how they market their platforms. But, you know, we really think about who does Facebook market? What is the identity of Facebook? And we still, I think it's caught in this, oh, it's for young people, but to actually become a platform for older people, more older people use Facebook now than uh, younger people do. And in fact, a lot of the internal documentation, publicly, Facebook is saying like, the youth is signing up, we're doing just fine. But internally, <laughs> the documentation says almost the exact opposite, that there's been a huge drop off in the 18 to 30 year old range that just are no longer users or just are not, not signing up. Do you think that they are aware of how that affects the young the Yeah, young I mean, it's such a easy question to ask that I feel like we should already have the answer for. <laughs> yeah. And um, a lot of the times it's been really difficult to tell because we don't have a lot of that data. But these Facebook papers allow us the first glimpses into what is actually going on. And um, Facebook has known, I don't know how long they have known, but they have known for some time that their platforms, especially Instagram, which is the platform that is geared towards younger users, probably around our age, has a negative effect on their users. Um, And they've known it for a while. In fact, uh, Francis Haugen released early on a study that found that uh, 13.5% of British teen girls said that their suicidal thoughts became more prevalent after they joined Instagram. Mm. This is is interesting because... This is who they're trying to market. Yeah. I I mean, when you look at it, it's like all trying to be young and hip and cool. So what does it mean to do that? Yeah, that's a really good question right there. I think only because these papers have been leaked, we're even beginning to understand what it's what is happening and even what that means. Yeah. You know, I mean, Um, so like, what do you think when you hear stuff like that, when you hear that? this company that is appealing, not only actively trying to appeal towards younger users, but is actually kind of appealing. Like when we talk about hot platforms, Instagram is the one we talk about all the time. So how do you feel about knowing the information that it has these obvious negative effects? You know, I learned in a course I'm taking with Dr. Sarah here at CSU, it's an intro to PR class. One of the theories that we learned about was agenda setting theory. Mm-hmm. So agenda setting theory is basically a theory that explores the mass media's relationship with the public. Mm. It explores the relationship with the public. And she put it to me like this. She said, the media does not tell people what to think. Mm. Well, agenda setting theory is not about telling people what to think. It's about telling people what to think about. Interesting. And, you know, the way that I interpreted that was like, okay, but, you know, there are literally people out here that are easily influenced, very much so not really going to 
think about something if it's not already existing in their space. Therefore, right. if you bring something into someone's space that was not there before, not only are you telling them what to think about, if your message is framed in a certain way, it is going to tell them what to think. Right. Especially if it aligns with preconceived biases that they already had. You know, so with that being said, with everything that's going on with social media and specifically Instagram, a lot of people may not be aware of the negative effects, you know, and it's because they are blinded by the veal of this is cool, you know, and this yeah. is hip, this is what is now and not really paying attention to the long term effects of SNS that we discussed in earlier episodes. Yeah, with that's what I keep Dr. thinking Priscilla. about. Yeah, like all these previous episodes keep feeding into this concept of like, mm -hmm. uh, like the idea of FOMO, the fear of missing out. It's kind of like, oh, I have to be on Instagram because if I'm not, I'm missing out on something important in some way. And I, and, and I wonder, you know, especially when we look at these studies of how it has negative effects on young people, it doesn't quite qualify what, is causing it or why they're feeling it. You know, mm -hmm. if it is a result of things like FOMO, then it really has to do with the aggressiveness that, because it's one thing, you know, like, do you watch television? Yeah. Do you watch 18 hours of television? Mm, actually, I do not watch. Well, I guess I watch the TV, but cable, no. But it's but very casual. TV. It's very casual. Though. But when we look at our social media usage, it's like, forced on us it's like this almost requirement to you oh i have to be on it or not even obligated if, yeah and 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 my cousin is in japan i have a cousin in japan and he actually does not have facebook because culturally in japan if you have a facebook and someone comments you're kind of culturally required to comment back like you can't leave people on you know on red you can't mm -hmm. ghost people there's like this expectation and so there's a lot of social pressure in social media that all of a sudden there's all these expectations that maybe don't exist outside of social media truly man and you know that's why i feel like it's very valuable to have relationships outside of it mm -hmm. you know like i've gotten to the point to where sometimes man i don't want to add you on social media if i know you you feel me like interesting yeah. i'm going to be seeing you like why do we have to be on social media together um or interacting in that way right it, if i'm getting the opportunity to experience a piece of your essence in person then getting the watered down version on social media is just like, it's not appealing to me, but that's just me, you know? And it's just very interesting what these documents are bringing to the light. You know, you, you said that it's a contradiction going on. Yeah. And I think that's the source of the identity crisis, this contradiction where these statements that are being made to the public the contradiction between those statements and what's going on inside of the company is very yeah. interesting. Do you have any insights as far as that goes? So uh, I'm a subscriber to the Washington Post. Uh, take with that what you will. Um, <laughs> it was a Christmas gift. So, um, But anyways, uh, the Washington Post was reporting on this as well. And you talk about the contradictions between public and private. And I think that that's okay. I think it's like perfectly acceptable it's to... Natural. Yeah. You know, like you always want to present your best face. But when we do look at the kinds of discrepancies between them, it's kind of night and day. And that's mm -hmm. kind of, I think, the disturbing, disturbing is the word that I'll use because we oftentimes, when we look at um, kind of like social economics, um, there's a, a social economist, his name is Dan Ariely, and he talks about how we all have a tendency to cheat but like just a little bit, um, when he talks about like the 08, 09, 07, 09 financial crisis, um, he talks about how like the reason why this was able to happen was because there was a culture of cheating. Lots of people were just cheating just a little bit at a time. And so when we think about like how companies will make a public statement, we oftentimes think, well, they're probably lying, but just a little bit, like mm -hmm. lying enough to just make it fungible, but it's still within the realm of possibility. But Facebook is... I'm just going to go ahead and say their pants are on fire when it comes to these <laughs> statements because the Washington Post reported that, um, so Facebook claims that they remove over 95% of you know hate speech before any human user even gets their eyes on there. And so you're like, wow, that's incredible. They must have some strong algorithms. But then the Facebook papers came out and uh, that number was actually less than 5% 
of actual all hate speech was being policed prior to a human user actually seeing it. So what they were saying is the exact opposite. And so I, I, I kind of wonder, I mean, what do you think? I mean, you say you're in an intro to PR class. Like, what do you think their reasoning is in saying something so boldly not true and then leaning back on these internal documentations, knowing that they're not doing what they said they did? You know, it's very interesting to see this play out this way. Oftentimes, whenever companies go into crisis, mm. you know, they they often have a plan in order. Like, this is what we're going to do in the event of a crisis, in the oh, okay. event of, like, this may be the end of us. Right. And you want to know what the, one of the strategies is? I think they dug a hole for themselves in doing this. They weren't, of course, they weren't anticipating a leak. Right. You feel I me? Mean? They weren't anticipating a leak, but they were obviously anticipating a crisis because they did one of the oldest tricks in the book. Which is? Corporate rebranding. Interesting. That's okay. What that's and you that we're about to move into that. Yeah, even well, deeper. I think we're about because so is this this that's is kind of like the metaverse. metaverse thing. Yes, ah. that's what the metaverse is, bro. It's a it's a it's gonna save Facebook. You know, it's gonna save it. It's crazy. Genius. It is genius, bro. It is genius. Mark Zuckerberg is being praised for this. Interesting. Um, I mean, we're gonna get into this in our third segment, yes, right? Yes, yes. I, I think that's I mean, before we get there, before we get there, I just want to kind of say that like when we talk about this metaverse and everything, and we will talk about what it means to buy into or to use a metaverse that is created by a single individual, but just kind of to give context again, again, I don't want to be scary. Like, I'm not trying to scare anyone who's listening, but the idea is like, Facebook has a lot of control. Zuckerberg, its gatekeepers have a lot of control over how we use their content. And so, you know, like not only were there reports of, you know, how little hate speech did they actually remove from their platform, but they were also doing things to like incite or to increase the amount of outrage that was on their platform because they had found that people who did angry emoji uh, reactions to posts had a higher share rate than other kinds of posts. And so algorithmically, we always talk about the YouTube algorithm, the Facebook algorithm, Instagram algorithm, but the, the Facebook algorithm um, from 2017 until just this year actually counted angry emoji reactions with five times the weight as a regular like would. And so when we think about stepping into these kinds of worlds or eventually entering into a metaverse, we have to remember kind of what does the interaction mean? Like we can choose to react any way that we want, but we oftentimes don't understand how that interaction is rated because we think it's one-to-one. -one. I like it, I dislike it, I angry it, or I laugh at it. We think that it's like a one-to-one, -one, but then if I do a specific action, it's actually five times the weight. And if I knew like if I kind of, because we talk about inoculation theory, a lot of how to deal with misinformation or disinformation yeah. and informing people and letting them understand how a mechanism works is a part of inoculation theory. Inoculation theory. Inoculation? Inoculation? I think it's inoculation. But then when we talk, you know, so if you were to describe to someone like every time you do an angry emoji reaction, that reaction gets five times as much weight as a laugh emoji. And if, some, if a user were to understand that, I would imagine they would either use it more knowing that or they would use it less, kind of only using the angry emotion if they are truly angry. Yeah. And, and so I, I really kind of when we talk about going forward in this next segment about the future of Facebook and this idea of a metaverse, we really have to think about like when we enter it, do we understand the internal mechanisms that are at play? Because if it wasn't for the Facebook papers, we would never know how these emojis were or how these reactions were weighted. And the fact that we still don't in a lot of ways makes me worried for what the future What's would be. What's to come. Mm -hmm. it's, it's wild, man. There are gatekeepers, people that regulate this platform and are not government entities. And their bias inevitably seeps through the cracks. And it is visible, <laughs> yeah. obviously. Um, possible agendas become more apparent when you come across information like the heavy weight of negativity mm -hmm. on the platform. It is an interesting situation because here in America, we enjoy having certain freedoms that Facebook does not allow in the universe it creates yeah. and is creating, has created. 
it's about to get very interesting, man. It is about to be very interesting. So next, we will get into this concept of the metaverse. We will be describing what that is. But for right now, we are going to go straight into this last track with me and Josh Camps called Whoa. doing y'all we're back back in this identity crisis and what you just listened to was a beautifully composed track by my brother once again josh camp morehouse alumni shout out to today you see you're represented here by my brother my love so next when we left off we were talking about and mentioning the metaverse i know this is another thing that you might be wondering. What is that? So the word meta, it has Greek origin, and it means after or beyond. Mm. Yes, it's very interesting, isn't it? And versus a suffix denoting an area of activity or interest oh. or a section of society distinguished by a certain particular characteristic. Interesting. Um, It could be... A fictional world associated with a particular character, TV series, author, or whatever form of media you might desire. It's very interesting. So you put these words together, they basically mean... I guess like beyond society. Beyond, yes, beyond the world. Yeah. Beyond world, the world of beyond. And it's very interesting to, to see what this word means and what it means for us to be moving into it. You know, that's very true, because when we talk about like we can define anything, yeah. but then the rubber meets the road and then all of a sudden it goes, what is a metaverse? Not what does metaverse mean, but yeah. what is a metaverse? So tell me, 
What did Deadline have to say about that? Yeah, so Deadline wrote an article uh, discussing basically Mark Zuckerberg's idea of a metaverse. And um, I'm just going to give kind of two quick quotes that he uh, gave in that interview. But um, he said, quote, it's the future that we are working towards. It is a virtual environment where you can be present with people in a digital space, an embodied internet that you are inside of. Mm. And he also calls it, quote, the next generation of the internet and the next chapter of us as a company. Um, he says that basically we're going to go from we're going to go from seeing Facebook as a social media company to seeing them as a metaverse company. So I guess you kind of talked about how that's the number one PR brand strategy mm -hmm. is brand. What is it? Brand rebranding, corporate rebrand, corporate rebranding. So then, you know, he's already hinting that they are no longer and, and not even Facebook. And we talked at the top that how are they supposed to convince lawmakers that, oh, we're a social media site, so therefore we still fall under this protection? They're creating their own universe, or or basically they will become heavy stakeholders yes. in the metaverse, mm -hmm. you feel me, with bringing billions of users with them? Yeah. You know? A quarter of the population? Exactly, mm -hmm. man. There, there's, there's nothing that can be... Lawmakers use it. They're going <laughs> to be using it. Like, there, there's no... It's basically like you're being forced into this way of life, man. It's, it's like they no longer even have to ask. They no longer have to ask, like, hey, what should we be doing? It's more like if you want in, you have to play by Facebook yes. rules. And not only Facebook rules, but Facebook laws. Exactly. The rulers of the metaverse. Yeah. And so I guess <laughs> it really comes down to, like, the idea of who creates reality in a lot of senses because— um, we often claim that we create our own reality. Mm -hmm. Reality is subjective. You want to believe that. But if we enter the metaverse, if we consciously enter a metaverse, whether it's Facebook's or whatever future is metaverse. It exactly. Is it our reality that we're participating in? Because again, if we go back to the idea that we there's information asymmetry, we only understand so much about the product and you and internally they understand so much more. Uh, how are we supposed to understand that we're in a fair world in a representative universe, metaverse, whatever, mm -hmm. that is fair to me. Because maybe as uh, you as a black user, you go into the metaverse and all of a sudden maybe you algorithmically don't have as much weight maybe as a white user would. Who, who knows? Like, again, because we talk about those gatekeepers, it's not just Mark Zuckerberg. It's, it's a bunch of tech people mm -hmm. who tends to be homogenous, tends to be very white, tends to be very... Eh, not necessarily cisgender, but they tend to be more stereotypically uh, white heteronormative people who are wealthy. Mm -hmm. And so then the things that they choose to gatekeep are very different from the things that you or I would choose to gatekeep. Truly, truly, man. And these are things that we can't deny or we can't just act like these aren't factors. But honestly, like you said, do we have a choice in the situation Agenda setting theory keeps coming to my mind when you say this, you know, like how will agenda setting theory look in the metaverse? That's know? true. How, how will agenda setting appear to us in the metaverse? We are literally about to transcend into the Internet, pass through this filter, and sooner or later we will no longer need these human meat sacks. <laughs> I mean, how does that make you feel? I feel many ways about it. I guess first... If we could actually get rid of our human bodies, I think that would be great, but that's an impossibility. Um, but I think that the idea of us, I mean, we talked about this before we started recording, how when you and I pass away, there's going to be so much, so many digital artifacts of ourselves that theoretically someone might be able to create an avatar of us that could like talk and respond in a way that I would or in a mm -hmm. way that you would. And so when I think about that, I, there's a part of me that, if that's something that helps someone, you know, creating these avatars that people can interact with, we always talk about like feeling uh, connected or the need to feel connected. And then maybe this is for some people enough. And so I'm really looking forward to that. You know, there's definitely connection. That's something that we all strive for, I think, as individuals. I mean, that's the reason why social networking sites are popular. We do want to connect. Um, but at the same time, I look at the negative downsides of what it means, as you're saying, you know, we're kind of transcending into the internet and you make it sound as if it's something that we had a choice to do, but you keep saying that we don't really mm -hmm. have that choice. And so I'm a little worried about that, how um, 
Bruce Schneier, he's a technologist, a cryptographer, and kind of a technology thinker. He always talks about how um, you can't actually use or you can't refuse to use social media. Like you can step away from it, but then you stop getting invited to things. You don't know things. You're disconnecting yourself from society. Yeah. And there are some actual negative effects to that. And so I would imagine that once this metaverse is established, anyone who like unequivocally says, no, I refuse to become a part of this, they would then lose out it's, on some life experiences. It's kind of like committing an um, digital suicide. <laughs> Interesting. I yeah. I mean, call it that. What, what does it mean? Like, imagine we spend so much time creating our Instagram profiles, our Facebook profiles. And, you know, we talked about this with Dr. Getz and how we spend so much time doing it that all of a sudden there's like this sunk cost fallacy. They're like, oh, we need to continue using it. But then let's say the metaverse comes up and then all of a sudden you have to redefine who you are in a completely new space. I mean, even that's already difficult enough. Definitely, man. Definitely. You know, you were saying that um, it's an impossibility to not have your, your meat set. You yeah. know, I don't believe that much is impossible. I can't really name too many things that I believe are. But I can tell you that I truly believe that we have the ability or we will have the ability very soon if we don't already. But that's not what it sounds like, you know, with the metaverse thing. We we will, if we don't already, have the ability to transfer our consciousness. And, you know, what's very interesting is The Verge, just two hours ago, bro, put up this article about a company making digital humans to serve the metaverse. Interesting. So they're, like, already doing laying the groundwork yes. for what is the future. So... I guess um, we have a few minutes here before we get out of here. So I'd really like to kind of maybe close out with this idea of we we talk about this metaverse. So what does this mean to you? Like, what is the introduction? I mean, it's here. You know, it's, it's here. It's no longer this thing, this philosophical thing. It's yeah. a legit thing. There's a company for it. Someone's paying money for it already. Yeah. Uh, Facebook says they're going to invest $10 billion a year, I think, into this. And that's oh huge. So what does this mean to you? And, 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 and I guess the second question, is this the future we want? I think this means that things are changing. And it means that I just need to be that much more grateful and appreciative of the, of the time that I have mm. to be what I am, whatever that is, you know, right. in this meat sack in Columbus State, mm -hmm. interacting with you right here in the radio station, saying hello to people on the street, actually being able to feel, mm. you feel me, like experience these, these, my senses in the ways that I am. It right. means that I need to be that much more appreciative of this experience because who knows what's going to change. And whether or not it's the future we want, right? it is here. You know, it is here. This is what is about to be. And like I said, everything changes. Everything from the margin moves to the center. Yeah. And the beauty in, in, in life and time is that nothing lasts forever. Not while you're bound by time. So with that being said, I just, I'm ready to receive and give my all, you know? How do you come to terms with inevitability, Sean? Interesting. I, I don't think we can come to terms with inevitability. I think the best that we can do is try and understand how that inevitability changes our world. Mm. Um, because there are very few things that are inevitable, right? We live, we die. Those are inevitable. Um, whether Facebook creates a metaverse, we kind of have said it's somewhat <laughs> inevitable, but there could be you know, physical failures, social failures along the way. So when I think about how do I come to terms with inevitability, I try not to get bogged down in the it's happening, but rather how is this going to happen and what does it mean when it does? Because uh, I think that the metaverse will change things. And I think that you and I will both end up on the metaverse, whether yeah. we like it or not. Yeah. Um, and I think that we'll use it to an extent that we do. I don't think that that inevitability means that we're immediately like canceling humans like we're not like all right not immediately not at all but i think it really again we go back to the inoculation theory 
or the information as the ideas of information asymmetry. I think that maybe as long as we're using the metaverse in a way that keeps us naive and we're not asking the questions and we're not pushing the way that we try and do here on the series, then I think that's how we do not come to terms with it. Uh, that's interesting that you say that. I think that we naturally knock on doors that we don't know that we don't want answered. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, yeah. And and I think it's those those moments are truth. Mm, yeah. Right? Like expected moments are a version of truth. It's kind of like when you when we do interview requests and we send off the questions, we kind of know we're going to get a uh, a practiced answer. But your serendipity is always coming and going as she pleases and that's what the truth is mm -hmm. something that you just can't calculate all the time mm -hmm. honestly at any time yeah you know so who are we <laughs> who are we uh, that's where we back where we started i don't know what's going on where am i oh my gosh i guess we're ending on an identity crisis <laughs> so look y'all close your eyes listen feel your surroundings and tell me or ask yourself what do you feel? Can you sense a shift? Not just around you, but within. Ground yourself and try to be one with the whole and appreciate all you have for now. Because yesterday, time was a sidewalk. <laughs> Love. Uproar Radio is produced with the cooperation of the student staff of WCUG Cougar Radio and the CSU Department of Communication. Thank you so much to the department chair, Dr. Dana Gibson, and the WCUG faculty advisor, Dr. Bruce Getz, for their help in airing this show. Show and I produced this episode. The editor this week, my homie Show. Uproar Radio was created by Ashley Peterson. Much love and thanks to her for it. She changed my life. Operations Director of WCUG Cougar Radio is Sho Irikawa. Our Programming Manager is Louis Myers. Marketing Manager is, Lo is Logan Swain. And our Production Manager is Austin Slocum. You can listen to our show and more online by searching for our call letters. WCUG. I'm Bryant, and you've been listening to Uproar Radio. Love. <laughs>